I'm sure most of you know me, um, but for those who don't, my name is Joy, and I've been coming to Oasis for, for quite a, a number of years now. Um, it's a privilege to, to speak to you this morning. Um, this morning we've got quite a meaty subject. Uh, the topic is how to spot false prophets, and it's continuing in Nikki Gumbel's book, The Jesus Lifestyle, looking at um, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so the readings for today are Matthew 7, chapter, 15, uh, chapter 7, verse 15 to 23. It will come up on the screen, so you don't need a Bible. And I'm going to read it so you can hear it. <laughs> True and false prophets. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. True and false disciples. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. On initial reading, this passage can be extremely daunting and worrying. In scripture, it follows directly on from the passage last week, the broad or narrow road, and it is similar in tone and theme. But however complex or challenging it may seem, it is the word of God and is therefore part of God's love story and his perfect plan for his creation. As Gillian said last week, we tend to threaten those we don't like, but we warn those we love. It therefore follows that Jesus never threatened anyone. He never held anyone to ransom, blackmailed, forced himself on anyone, or cajoled. But in his love and grace, he thoughtfully warned people of the dangers they may face along life's road. As Jonathan touched on in his sermon on Sunday, Revelation 3 verse 19 says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, like every good parent, God our Father has words of love, but also words of advice and warning to speak into our lives. As we've seen, this reading is split into two sections. In essence, the first part, as we've touched on, is God, in his love, warning us about false teachers. 
The second part hints at why it is paramount we, as his disciples, take heed of his warnings. Away from me, you evildoers, is a not-so-subtle reminder that God is judge and Lord of all. Love and judgment sit hand in hand. If God is Lord, you can't have one without the other. So let's unpack what this means, and we'll start, as Jesus did, by looking at false teachers or prophets. Watch out is the first instruction here. A phrase recognized even today as a warning, a clear and concise calling to be alert, an urge to ensure you see what is actually happening around you so you don't miss the danger and fall into the trap. Why is Jesus saying this? He is saying it because the danger is our enemy and it comes disguised as our friend. Jesus, the good shepherd, tells us his flock, his sheep, be aware of your arch enemy, the wolf. But more than that, watch out, for the wolf is wearing sheep's clothes. We are to watch out. However, it is worth covering what it doesn't say. And what it doesn't say is judge everyone. We are to be alert, wise and discerning, and we are to watch. But no more than that. God is the judge. But what exactly are we watching out for? The answer is in the passage. We are to look at the fruit. For false and true prophets will be revealed by their fruit. Jesus says twice, by their fruit you will recognize them. You will. You will recognize them. For a bad tree cannot produce good fruit, and a good tree, bad fruit. Let's imagine for a moment that this picture of a tree represents our lives. It is interesting to note that it is by our fruit we shall be recognized, not by our roots. On an individual, personal level, what has gone on before where you started from, what is buried so deep in the past that only God knows about, that is between you and God. When we become Christians and are born again, God can and will heal rotten roots if we feed and nourish them with his word. But the work that is ongoing underground is not how you will be identified not how others will recognize you, and not how you will be known. It is not our place to scrutinize, dig deep, and condemn. Rather, we have a much simpler task. Be watchful and look for the fruit. I imagine all of us would struggle to identify an apple tree just from its roots. But all of us would recognize it by its fruit. Compared to a tangled web of roots, fruit is far more visible, far easier to accurately recognize, and it is a distinguishing feature when compared to other trees. However, let's change perspective now and imagine this tree 
is a church. On a corporate level, the teachers and leaders are planting that church. They are responsible for nurturing, feeding, and growing that spiritual community. So it follows that they are responsible for the roots of that church. Such is a teacher's capacity to influence people that becoming a teacher comes with its own separate and direct warning. James 3 verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. God loves his bride, the church, and is jealous over it. He is therefore going to judge more strictly those who have damaged the roots of any church community. So what do we need to see in our teachers to be peaceful and satisfied that they are a holy and godly influence on our church? First, and above all, they need to teach the Bible. As Christians, this is the holy word of God. It sounds obvious that churches should teach the Bible, but so often it is modified, added to, or embellished, and most common these days, it might be twisted or taken out of context, or there may be selective emphasis or rejections of certain parts based on cultural or ecclesiastical trends. So first things first, we need our teachers to stick to scripture and uphold it as the holy and everlasting word of God. In the Osborne commentary on the New Testament, we find these words of advice. We must at all times be on the watch for deviations from orthodoxy. We must do so carefully, separating the cardinal doctrines, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, substitutionary atonement, the return of Christ, from those on which we should agree to disagree and maintain a larger unity. For example, spiritual gifts, the mode of baptism or gender roles. Too often, we are fighting the wrong battles while true heretics steal our sheep. Osborne is therefore saying there are key doctrines of our faith that all true Christian teachers should teach and agree on. There are then far more minor and relatively insignificant features that people will interpret in different ways. These are not central to the faith. And whilst they give rise to different denominations within the Christian church, they should not be divisive. We should agree to disagree and maintain unity. So firstly, we are to be taught the Bible. Any teaching needs to be rooted in scripture. Any claims about Christ and who he is and what he's done and what he offers need to be found in the Bible. Secondly, we can expect to be taught that salvation is won through the grace of God. We do not have to do anything to earn our salvation. It is freely offered to all who believe. Thirdly, we must be taught that there is only one way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one way to God, and that is through being redeemed by Jesus' death on the cross. Fourthly, we can expect to hear the message that Christ died once for all. 
that the gospel is for all people for all time. All are welcome in the family of God. And fifthly, we should hear that the gospel is good news. It's life-enhancing and enriching. It is good for us, good for our marriages, good for our families, good for society. It opens our eyes and enriches our souls. It awakens our senses to the beauty of creation and it stills our hearts in times of trouble. It doesn't promise a happy, prosperous, healthy or easy life, but it does offer a peaceful one. It purifies the dirt of sin and nullifies the finality of death and promises everlasting life for all who believe. It is no fairy tale, but it does have a happy ending. The victory is won. There is a lovely, if slightly twee story in the Nicky Gumbel book, The Jesus Lifestyle. It tells of a woman working in a bank and being trained as a bank teller. The lady is taught the ways of money. She's immersed in this each day and gets to know the feel, size, colour, weight and markings of the banknotes extremely well. Then one day, her bosses blindfold her and give her a stack of money to sort. Without hesitation, she goes about her task, but picks out a few notes she's not happy with. They had slipped some counterfeit notes into the bundle, and she accurately picked them out. She had never been educated on counterfeit notes, only true ones, but yet the false signs stood out to her as obvious frauds. So it is with faith. We do not need to spend a lot of time studying false teaching to recognize it. If we have a relationship with Jesus, it will be obvious to us. The fruit will be clear. It will jar with our spirit and souls. It will go against everything we know to be true. It will feel dangerous rather than safe. Because instead of speaking truth, it will be heresy. Instead of being biblically sound, there will be corruption of the word, even claims of false messiahs. Instead of grace-based salvation, we earn it through completion of various tasks, rituals, or initiations. Instead of one narrow way, we get many broad ways, one group offering one way, another group another, or an all-roads-lead-to-God attitude. Instead of being inclusive and welcoming and open to all, we get exclusive sects only available to a chosen and select few who meet certain criteria. And instead of eternal life, we get life-limiting teaching, putting restrictions, constraints and extra rules or requirements on the human experience. Or, more dangerously still, cutting short lives by violent means. John Stott said this. In referring to certain teachers as false prophets, it is clear that Jesus was no syncretist, teaching that contradictory opinions were in reality complementary insights to the same truth. No. He held that truth and falsehood excluded one another and that those who propagate lies in God's name are false prophets, of whom his followers must beware. Jesus said 
I have come, that you may have life and have it to the fullest. He did not say, I have come that you may have death and have it via suicide pact. Friends, there is no overlap, no grey area. The truth and the false are diametrically opposite. That is the stark and harsh reality to the danger of false prophets. God's invitation, however, is to a truthful, light and more glorious way. And it is open to all. Psalm 34 verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So what does this fruit taste like? What does a church community look like if it has healthy roots? What features will we recognise? What are the distinct characteristics of a Christian community that distinguish it from others? Galatians 5, 19 to 23 says this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So it follows. If the church is rooted in grace, then the work of the Spirit can thrive. And the fruits will be evident. The church will be recognized by its love for God and humankind. The undeserved free gift of grace will give a deep and impermeable joy. Walking the narrow way will produce an unwavering faithfulness to God and a hunger for his word. The church will respond to the message that Christ died for all by being known for its good works and by extending kindness and gentleness to all. And it will be uncompromising on the truths of the Bible, exhibiting self-control in its morals and behavior. And it will be uniquely known for its peace, especially in times of trouble and opposition. What an attractive community that is. By these fruits, you will recognize them. In his love, Christ warns us to watch out. Watch out for the wolves who may look like true teachers. His warning advises us to select leaders and pick churches rooted in Christ. Then we will enjoy the fruits of this, his church, his community, his family. However, the passage doesn't end there. The book does not stop with the teachers. We are all accountable for our own actions and choices. And thus the second half of the passage warns what will happen if we, the sheep, his disciples, are found lacking. For whilst, as we have seen, there can be corruption on the level of teachers, there can also be at the level of disciples. Clearly, in giving these warnings, Jesus saw this as an issue, as a real problem for the church. 
and we would be naive to think that it wasn't still a problem today. It can be subtle, or it can be more serious, malicious, and targeted. Some of you will know that in 2015, my brother and his family moved out to New Zealand for a year to help plant a church. In September of this year, the pastor of that church sent a message asking for prayer, as their church had come under attack from a cult. He sent a link to their church website where he had published a warning regarding this, which he grounded in the same verses we're looking at today from Matthew 7. Part of the warning or prayer aid read as follows. The group is a dangerous and deceptive cult that originated in South Korea in 1984. In short, they believe that the founder is the second coming of Jesus and that only he is able to interpret the true meaning of the Bible. A simple Google search of this group will reveal that they have all the hallmarks of a cult, features such as only they have the secret knowledge and the way to salvation. The 144,000 in the book of Revelation refers specifically and exclusively to them. Salvation is by works, specifically by recruiting and harvesting new members. They allege to have special revelation outside and indeed contradictory to the Bible. The founder is believed to have divine qualities more than human, and only he can correctly interpret scripture. Generally, they don't evangelize people in the traditional sense, trying to share with unchurched people the good news of Jesus. The way this cult operates is to send recruiters into existing churches to form relationships with people attending that church and to remove them, establish them in the cult, and then use them to recruit more people from the church. The cult has been active in recruiting people from churches in Auckland in the last few years and has done significant damage to a number of churches. One church lost a number of families, including worship leaders, kids and youth leaders, community group leaders, and even an elder of the church. It has damaged churches and destroyed families. I think this example helps us to clearly see why Jesus gave this warning, and indeed why he added this second part about false disciples. Just as there will be false prophets, so there will be false disciples. And indeed, one false teacher can equal lots of false disciples. But this warning applies to all. For any sheep can be targeted by the wolf. We are vulnerable, not only to attacks that stem from outside the church, but also from within the church, those wolves dressed as sheep. But there is also a third way we can be deceived, and that is self-deceit. Our own vanity can allow pride to rule our hearts rather than God. As such, this is also a warning against being a nominal Christian. Those who apparently believe themselves to be Christian, and indeed in some cases who can demonstrate activities to prove it, but who are nonetheless, who nonetheless turn out to have no relationship with Christ. Those who tell themselves they're okay, nod in the right places, and even say things like, Lord, Lord, but who in fact are not obedient to Christ. 
John Stott puts it like this. The question is not whether we say nice, polite, orthodox, enthusiastic things to or about Jesus, nor whether we hear his words, listening, studying, pondering, and memorizing until our minds are stuffed with his teaching, but whether we do what we say and do what we know. In other words, whether the lordship of Jesus, which we profess, is one of our life's major realities. God warns us out of his love because the reality is there will be a day of judgment. And on that day, only he has the authority to separate the righteous from the unrighteous, those who have a relationship with him and those who do not. He cannot compromise on the entry requirements. Heaven is not for the lukewarm, nor the seemingly good, nor the definitely not good. In John 10, chapter, sorry, John 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. So the challenge is, do we know God? Have we invited him into our hearts? Does he dwell within us and we in him? And do we obey him out of our faith and love for him? For it is a stark truth that on the day of judgment, some who claim to be Christians will be turned away. Thinking back to our example of the forged notes, whilst they are in circulation, they can do a lot of good. Someone can be paid with counterfeit money for an honest day's work. That worker can then feed his family with the money and even give some to the poor. But when the notes ultimately return to the bank, they will be identified and exposed for what they really are. As uncomfortable as it is, if we water down the gospel and deny the authority of God to judge we do end up with a worldview that is far too liberal. We end up with the view that all roads lead to salvation, that there is no supreme deity, that anything goes and ultimately nothing matters. We end up hopeless. As H. Richard Niebuhr put it, we end up believing in a situation where a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. Similarly, if we deny the love of God, we end up with a worldview that is too shallow, dogmatic and constricted, a dangerous cult where only a select few can enter, where you have to earn your place, where guilt and strife rule the day, where your salvation depends on how good you are, not how gracious God is. It's both love and judgment. We ended the first passage grateful for the love of Christ because that love leads him to warn us. He wants to direct us and keep us on the straight and narrow, to feed and nurture us like any good shepherd does his sheep. We end this second part grateful for the judgment of Christ. Grateful that people will be held accountable. Grateful that because he is judge, we don't have to be. Grateful that because he judges, 
heaven retains its perfect purity. For God's sovereignty will not be compromised, nor his authority eroded. If we deny God is judge, we forfeit his love. You can't have one without the other. For it is at the cross where love and judgment meet. Where because of his great love for us, God the Father sent Jesus his son to die and to take that judgment and wrath for all human sin, once for all, so we can be reconciled with our maker forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father,